Um, although you get some wacky stuff where like your your soldier has to fire a shot and you watch it go into a barn three blocks down, it hits a gas tank. The enemy's two feet from him. He misses that badly. Ninety eight percent accuracy, more like two percent accuracy. <laughs> yeah, and that happens five times in a row. Yep. So you're questioning your own will to live at this rate. <laughs> yeah, and XCOM was no uh, was definitely uh, <laughs> notorious for stuff like that too. Because again, like I just said, ninety eight percent accuracy really is more like two percent accuracy. Guy could be right there. It's really uh, it's not an accurate measure of how accurate your firing is. It's how certain your soldier is that they that can too. make the shot. Which really has nothing to do no. with their skill. It has to deal with their confidence. Oh, looks like Billy Bob's really confident. Yeah, he's got he's got a seventy percent chance to hit that killer. Ale. Nope, looks like Billy Bob has missed horribly. Um, he's so confident he stuck the barrel in the enemy's face, right down his face hole. But no, he misses. Just as a reminder, this is a spoiler-heavy podcast. The notes for what series will be popping up are in the description. Hi, everybody. Thanks for listening in on this next episode of Gaming Theater Podcast. Now, today's episode is going to be a great one. It's going to be episode three, Ghouls and Ghosts and the Difficulty Spike of Retro Games. Now, with me is going to be a couple of guests that you probably have heard before uh, from Gaming Theater Present. This, is, of course, is me, Leo, Geek Scorpio. And how about you guys quickly introduce yourselves? I'll go ahead and go first, then. Uh, this is Steven with uh, uh, also part of Gaming Theater Presents, too. Uh, recent edition, also go by uh, Noble Snarf. Uh, go ahead and introduce yourself. Next person who wishes to introduce himself, go, go. Chop, chop. I'm Rob. I also frequent Gaming Theater Presents. Okay, I guess you're leaving it to that. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I, I'm sorry, I don't have as many accolades as the rest of you. Accolades, okay. No, so he has his own section called By Rob. So. <laughs> oh, okay, fair enough. <laughs> and I am Tomato Man, also part of Gaming Theater Presents, but also, also part of Yield Tomato Gaming on YouTube where we also host a podcast called On the Screen that Leo's on every single one of. Most of them. In fact, before we get started, let's go take a trip to the Magical Merch Booth. All right, back again to the Magical Merch Booth. And once again, there's the bard sort of watching over the the merch by watching over i mean not paying attention to anything and apparently has left nothing but a pamphlet left behind um all this says is that it asked us to for more information about about uh, your podcast oh okay so uh it's a weird one where basically i specifically curate the uh <laughs> the topic and absolutely nobody else that's involved knows what the topic is until we start recording so it's kind of an impromptu, on-the-fly, um, tip-of-the-tongue kind of thing. What comes to mind at the moment? All right, great. Well, I'm just going to hang on to this pamphlet and throw it with the pile of other pamphlets I'm starting to capture. But um, this looks like the lines are moving and the show's going to get started, so let's get going. All right, 
so with this, um, this is sort of the brief history of how game uh, is. It's going to be a brief history about how older games and retro games have gotten this sort of notoriety of being difficult, and how they sort of progressed throughout the years of how gaming works on that that sort of. So I figured the best way to deal with this is to start chronologically. So we'll start and explore how these games start either feeling difficult or being actually hard or where the populace has been sort of leaning towards on that. So to start with us off, most of the games have, chronologically speaking, have started from the old arcades and the arcade system from the 60s, 70s, and 80s. Um, the original arcades, because of how their technology was back then, it was less of a concern to make anything harder and more of a concern of making it work. And then about um, early uh, early 80s, uh, probably late 70s, um, that's when arcades started introducing for their arcade managers uh, difficulty meters that they could set for the arcades back then. Um, they were a thing called dip switches, and some of them will have... Not every game actually had a dip switch for difficulty. For example... Um, Frogger does not have a difficulty spike. So if you have, if you're playing Frogger once, you're all, that game of Frogger in the arcade is going to be the same every single time. But if you're playing some of the other of the other games out there, such as Donkey Kong is a famous one, they have a setting that lets the the manager go in to change the switch, so that way they can make the game easier, media, uh, normal, or hard. But they have to flip that switch. So, oh, with that. Um, there's kind of a weird a reason for that. In from my understanding, uh, it's sort of how the managers there may want to market the way that they want their games. Usually, what will happen is the newer games they will set for a higher difficulty, with the intention that a person may lose that game and therefore uh, try uh, repeat, try again, and want to and spend more money on that. But for older games or ones that have sort of died out and haven't uh, been as popular, they would set it to an easier difficulty, ideally encouraging more people to play to just play the game. One of the reasons for this is sort of, especially with things called kill screens. Because if you are doing well enough, especially back then, there was a kind of an oversight where they had a programming error. And I don't know if this is just sort of they didn't think about this at the time or just skipped the information for it. But, um, so a famous kill screen is the one in Pac-Man. Every time you beat one level in Pac-Man, it adds another icon at the bottom of the screen for Pac-Man, right? And then every, uh, and what it does is it adds another image of a, of a fruit. And then another fruit, and then another fruit, and then once you get to about seven of these, it starts adding in another, because it'll say the last seven levels that you have, and then at some point the last one will be a key. And then after so many rounds of this, it'll just keep doing keys and adding those on as the images at the bottom. If you get, if you're managed to stay in the game up until stage about 256, it will go into a kill screen and lock out. And that's because these are what's called, and this might get a bit technical for some people, it's, um, they work on a binary 8 system. So if for a binary system, it goes 0, 1, 0, 1, 0, 1. And then... Once you get to about eight of these images, uh, that's uh, if you know binary, that means all eight, so one zero 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 and so on, would make the number uh, two hundred fifty-five. At two fifty-six, though, it'll add one more number, and there's not a spot to put a ninth number, which 
kills off the whole screen and, and it looks like someone just vomited code all over the, the screen. Specifically, what happens is that it goes to a negative number. Um, it'll go from positive 255 to negative 255. And if your code isn't expecting to handle a negative number, it doesn't know what to do. And you get, well, code vomited all over your screen. Yeah, there's a, a similar thing that happens. Uh, well, not necessarily something that happens, but it's uh, tied to the same element is uh, stats and early RPGs. Um, the the stat levels for characters was actually maxed mm-hmm. at 255 because it's a matter of the maximum value attributable to a single byte in the data or something like that. So that's why your stat max is 255. Mm-hmm. I think that's also why um, some games like um, the Tales of series, the maximum player level is 255. Like even on, uh, what is it, yeah, the Tales it, of Vesperia on the 360, uh, you have new game pluses. And even then the top level is like 250 or 255. So I feel like that's probably somehow connected since the Tales series has been around since the Super Nintendo. Yeah, in more in more modern computer programming and gaming and whatnot, it's likely more done as an in-joke. Probably. Back in the day, an extra byte of memory was a lot. Yes, it you was. Know, an extra, you know, an extra byte of memory to handle the number the level number you were on. Who wants to spend that time of time? Who's even gonna get that high? Let's not spend the resources on it that could be better used for other stuff. Nowadays, an extra byte of memory for your for your number is not that big of a deal. Especially with games having what, gigs of data that's just stored now? Yeah, we're talking bytes versus not, not even a megabyte. We're talking singular bytes for this game to work. Not even a KB, man. Mm. Just byte. Just bytes. <laughs> now, so with that, though, they kind of made an interesting deal. So so a lot of them will go into, ter- this is what builds up tournament gaming, to see basically how far you can get with one quarter and just go. And, I mean, there's still arcade tournaments going on today for that. This will come into play later because... Um, Another arcade hit that comes out later at some point, I think late 80s, the original Street Fighter, not Street Fighter 2, but the first one, it was, uh, and Kung Fu, no, no, Karate Master, I think is the name of that game, but they were designed as versus games. And so there weren't a difficulty spike in there because it was expected that somebody else would be your opponent. They just added a computer to just take over for it. Um, But this sort of blends itself better for like tournament play. You have two people challenging themselves. So old school arcade tournaments for like Pac-Man and such, they would get to the kill screen. Uh, someone would be witnessing who uh, the referee, because you'd have to have a referee to watch this, would witness the event. And once that event has hit, um, they're allowed to get another quarter to start over again because the game you have to manually reset the game and get back to it. Now, interesting enough, and this is where Ghosts and Goblins and Ghouls and Ghosts and games like that sort of came into play. Rather, from Ghouls and Ghosts, or Ghosts and Goblins specifically, which is the original arcade title, and not the Ghouls and Ghosts that we did the episode for, those that game was actually designed to not have a difficulty uh, spike. It was designed with the intention that a person could still get through the whole thing from repeated knowledge. Everything that happens in the game will always happen every single time, and so you can get to the end of this game. That's why sometimes Ghouls and Ghosts get the, the moniker of the first Soulsborne game of the arcade. Yep. 
Oh, that would be pretty accurate to that too. Cause I mean, a lot of it is, is that, you know, you're, and this, this is where more of my specialty will come into this as well as cause when we did the playthrough, obviously as you guys have witnessed with the uh, YouTube channel with super goals and ghosts, me being the pilot of that game, a lot of that is familiarity. The reason why I was able to get through most of that is because it's all patterns. It's always going to be patterns. Um, your souls born's games are no different than that too. But the reason why these games had those difficulties was because every enemy had a different pattern to it, from the zombies to the uh, um, to the uh, uh, amaranths, uh, the red devils that flo uh, flew around. And uh, obviously, how you approach those were a player specific choice too. So, but I mean, that's where you would talk about that. It's like what weapon is works the best compared to which enemy that you are fighting obviously you're going to have the zombies who go down one hit so any weapon's great for that but then when you get to the guys who die bomb you who drop to the ground and rush you and stuff like that and they don't go down one hit that's where the difficulty comes in it's because that's a pattern and that's exactly what you're talking about right there leo too and the ghost of goblins was was the one that was pretty much king of this sort of stuff because that's it was the whole point mm -hmm. behind it was to make something that wasn't just a game that while it did loop and in the arcade, it really looped. There was never a kill screen for it. It was just keep going until you basically died. And for most people, that was probably before you even made it to the first boss, the Cyclops. Um, but, you know, it's, yeah, it's, it's all pattern-based, so. Now, they do do an extension to that. That's not the first game to ever have something like that where it's pattern-based. And it's, uh, if you track back some of the older games on there, which is interesting because some of these older, more difficult games tend to have a lot more effects and specialties added to them. Like, for example, um, their uh, Dragon's Lair is one of those games. Its graphics, yeah. especially in, in 1982, amazing because it's a cartoon, a live-action cartoon that you're doing. Arguably super hard, though, because you have to know exactly where a position is. And the... Uh, and it can be kind of janky on how accurate it is when it hits one thing or when you when you select an action for it. But if you know all the actions on it, um, then you will be able to uh, to get through the game. What's interesting in that is there's a point in Dragon's Lair where it loops itself and mirrors itself. So you will enter one room that happens to look like a... So the only three rooms in the entire game that you will actually that is always played once and you never go back to is the entrance of the of the of the castle then there's the fight with the lizard king and then the final fight at the end with the with the dragon those yep. three instances are all there but outside of that it'll randomize what rooms start popping up and in whether or not um, one room will be facing left or facing right because one will be a mirror of each other so kind of like an early uh, procedural generation. Correct. Correct. Yep. That actually uh, leads into a little bit of our engagement types. Um, I, I mentioned before in design analysis, but your engagement type is basically what makes this game fun. Uh, there's a bunch of different types, but the primary one that we're talking about is challenge. It's more engaging. It's more fun to overcome a difficult challenge than it is to overcome an easy challenge. It means more to say, I beat ghosts and goblins than it means to say, I beat, I don't know, My Little Pony's Adventure or something like that. Hey, Crystal Pony's Tale is a rough one, man. <laughs> <laughs> but even within this category of challenge, there's a lot of subcategories, things that, um, you know, what makes one game challenging can be very different from what makes another game challenging. When we're talking about 
ghosts and goblins, we're talking about practice. You get better at this by seeing the patterns and memorizing them yep. and then remembering them as you go along. With something like Dragon's Lair, though, it's a little bit more about improvisation. Um, you, you still, it still helps to know and memorize all the patterns of the room. But since you don't know which one's coming up next, you need to be flexible. Really, if you want to be good at Dragon's Lair, it's more about your ability to adapt to a new scenario than it is to remember how previous scenarios played out. Right, because it's not going to be the same scenario each time because the rooms will randomize. Correct. And I mean, if they flip if they flip around, like some of those rooms did do, like literally almost, if I remember correctly, second half of the castle always goes and mirrors itself. And that's when you start seeing the random generalization, what you're just, what you both are talking about with Dragon Slayer. But sorry, Rob, I didn't mean to cut you off. Go ahead, buddy. That's fine. So something that appeals to one player might not appeal to another. You know, ghosts and ghouls, there are a lot of people who really like experiencing that same thing and getting really good at doing that same thing over and over again. And there's a lot of people that really don't like that, but they love having to adapt to something new. And so even though these are both very challenging games, they approach it from very different aspects. Oh yeah. Um, an interesting one that people don't think of. Um, so Sega did uh, their own version of a quick time event game like Dragon's Lair did, except in the arcade because they could pour more money into this um since they're uh with different games that they were designing they designed a game called time traveler now oh very few people nowadays may have ever experienced it but if you do it's kind of a weird one-off uh thing but essentially you would not only do you have patterns on it it's a completely th uh, holographic game so by that means there's no real screen it bends light so that way you can see your imaging which became a problem in the arcade because those are dark and dick caves in some cases. So yeah. if you were standing slightly off of the position, you can't see anything, even though it's a 3D <laughs> image. Meanwhile, a person on the other side is seeing it flip because they're seeing just the the images built by lasers for that. Looks super cool, but you know that's a that's a its own set of jankiness. God, you had to bring that one up. I, that's a game I actually forgot about. Yeah, that's uh, but. It's interesting to think about it because the game is designed with less stuff in it, but to be just as hard as Dragon's Lair, they decided to instead put the effort into graphical upgrades. It's a holographic game system built in the early 90s when holograms from light sources is still basically science fiction. Now, did, did they use prisms to like do the like to create the hologram on the screen for you or or not on the screen, I should say, but uh to project it in a way that you can see it. Basically a black screen uh, that you would have in there. And what they would do is reflect the light from okay. using small prism lasers to the screen. And so it built it as if there was a screenless system. Gotcha. All right. Like we would, we have something similar like that right now. You don't see it very often, but that has to deal with mass production. It's just expensive to make something like that. Yeah. But they had it. <laughs> it's kind of like 3D movies now. They had 3D movies back in the 50s. It's just we don't do it very often anymore. Uh, as the technology isn't the same as it is now. Shark Boy and Lava Girl much? <laughs> hey, man. Well, it's more expensive to do. And for a lot of people, there's not a huge payoff. Right. Mm -hmm. um, you know, some people play games because the cool graphics. But that's, you know, that's not a huge selection of people, especially in you know the early 90s late 80s 
if you want to do experience cool visuals, you're not going to an arcade. You're going to the movie theater. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so this is how the hard uh, difficulty of games spike around with the arcades. Now, from the arcades, we move on to, before we get to consoles, we actually go into home computer games at the time. Um, some of them are tough just by in its nature. Like, surprisingly, a lot of people have died off in Oregon Trail because we all had dysentery somehow. Um, Screw you, Terry. Hey, fuck you, man. Or you're dissing Terry. <laughs> yeah, man, that guy just died dissing Terry. <laughs> right. <laughs> um, but there's other things. In the 80s and going on to the 90s, there was a rise of a game uh, genre, the point-click adventure game, or your basic adventure game. Now, in some cases, there was, again, just like in the arcade, oversight and problems with it because, uh, but that just happened. For example, a big one was the company Sierra. Sierra was notorious for designing games in a way that they had an unwinnable scenario. And some of those were just brutal. King's Quest, one of the earlier King's Quests is... I was say, King's Quest is one I was trying to think of. I was trying to think of the title for it, but yeah. Yeah, King's Quest, Space Quest. Um, oh, shoot, Space Quest, man. Yeah, the, the, the intergalactic janitor of doom is basically what you were. <laughs> Space Quest was kind of... a. Uh... It sucked because Space Quest actually had a thousand different ways you could die in Space Quest. And so you can make, and they just kept that trend going too. Um, a almost notorious one um, is the old DOS Hitchhiker's Guide of text game. Yes. Because, so for those who haven't played that, what which is a large portion of us, even I haven't played it, but I know of it. Oh, yep. The way that the game works is towards the beginning of the game, it follows this, uh, similar things that happened in the book, The Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy. One of the things that happens at the beginning is the how is, well, Earth gets destroyed. Not Earth. I live there. Shit. Pretty much, yeah. So the thing is that you get abducted by the guards to their ship. You have a small amount of time and this is a text-based game. You have a small amount of time to type out and get to, and go through your house to recover 10 specific items. If you miss one of those items at the end of the game, Marvin, the robot, will ask you to help, to help him fix the ship. And he will ask you for specifically the one item you did not pick up. And that's not as bad as saying the Babelfish puzzle, which was so notorious at the time. That there used to be a, uh, was a company that printed out shirts that said, yes, I beat the Babelfish puzzle. That's awesome. Well, and part part of this, I think, comes, part of it's just, you know, from programming limitations. Especially with Sierra, you know, we're entering into a new game type where players are allowed to do anything that they can type. That's, you know, a big deal. And there's a lot of things that players can do. And so you're maybe not thinking super hard about how if they do action A how it might interrupt their ability to do action B later. And part of that's just, you know, because there's too many things to keep track of. But in the case of Hitchhiker's Guide, where they are specifically programming it to screw you over because you didn't get this one item, that's an attempt at difficulty in what is ultimately a narrative game. You know, people aren't playing Hitchhiker's mm-hmm. Guide to the Galaxy because they're expecting a great challenge. They're doing it because it, it was a funny book. And they want to relive that funny book and play it themselves. But the design aspects, the the design principles for narrative games weren't really in place yet. People didn't fully know what they were doing. And so it's like, 
this is how you make video games is you make them hard. That's what makes it a video game is it is the challenge. And this is kind of where we're starting to learn that actually, no, that's not what makes this game fun. They're, um, so Sierra makes a bunch of these games and they're all designed with different unwinnable scenarios. There's another company, Infocom, which also makes a bunch of these. They made the Hitchhiker's uh, Guide Zork games, which are notoriously tough. Oh, yeah, Zork. I do remember Zork. Oh. <laughs> yeah. I have some nightmares about Zork. <laughs> I think every, I think anybody who's who's been alive as long as we have been should have nightmares yeah. about Zork, where that should just be pretty much like, yeah, you hear Zork and people are going to be in the corner cowering, crying, <laughs> and just rocking themselves back themselves, you know? You can 100% play Zork on the Xbox 360. I don't um, want to. Well, because Black Ops 2 has a, um, in the, the secret break-off thing where you can get out of the chair, there's a computer that has a full functional playable version of Zork and you can play the whole thing. Again, one of those things was like, I, and I'll tell you this too, cause I'm a sadistic person. Cause I mean, obviously I enjoy playing games like Ghosts and Goblins are very sadistic in nature, but, um, or is that masochistic? One or the other. No, it's sadistic. Masochistic is if you, it's no, sadistic. sadistic is if you enjoy others pain masochistic is if you enjoy your own so it'd be masochistic at that point i mean don't get me wrong i do i do enjoy watching you guys suffer when you try to play a game that i know i could be and then it's at the same time it's also kind of masochistic to me though too because i'm just like <laughs> i want to help you out so badly i just want to tell you what to do but i know if i do you're just not going to enjoy the punishment that's coming your way and and neither will you exactly <laughs> and at the end of the day neither of us are a winner and that's how i feel about that but I mean, yeah, because I remember that though too. It's like as a person who who played Zork, and I never really beat Zork, but when I remember when they put that in Black Ops Two, and I got up and I did the whole thing for that. I was like, oh wait, Zork's in this. All right, let me go check that out. And then I I feel I find, I think I found myself enjoying Zork a little bit more than I did the multiplayer of Black Ops Two. And that's saying something because Black Ops Two multiplayer is pretty good. Yeah, it's fantastic. But Zork is Zork, and while I enjoy suffering, and I do. <laughs> I, you know it's like i do do i enjoy getting so, like suffering because somebody knifed me or do i enjoy suffering because i'm trying to play through zork oh man but yeah so zork is another big one on it hope on the horizon for anybody who, who wants to do that so at some point lucasarts the game uh, company that's designed around george lucas's uh, uh franchise you might have heard of it called the star wars um a division and this is a thing the Back in the 80s, some companies would start having their own video game department just to make games for their own merchandise. And mostly that's merchandising things. Uh, we'll get into more of that in a much later episode about the funny story about merchandising and things for video games. It's a planned episode for it. But what happens is that LucasArts came with the decision that the game should never be unbeatable. And so there every scenario that they had was always a way that there, you could still beat the game regardless of what, of even if you screwed yourself over. Now, to this effect, they make a revolutionary system to make it easier for every t uh, uh, point-click adventure game going forward called the SCUM system. Now, it's called SCUM because it's short for System Created for Use of Maniac Mansion because the game Maniac Mansion comes out and Maniac Mansion in, does not, uh, they remove the typing option that most adventure games had back in the 80s. So, because they took that away, every command that you will ever use in the game is there. And it allowed them to play with other things within the programming, too. So, 
it's the first, one of the earliest uh, games that has multiple endings because of this. And because uh, in Maniac Mansion, you get to pick one. Uh, you you have to go classic eighties mo- uh, movie. There's a, uh, a a mad scientist has kidnapped uh, 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 the main hero's uh, girlfriend, and you have to save him with two of your friends. But depending on which two people that you pick, uh, me, uh, ultimately decides on which endings that you have possible, and that's key. Possible, not final. So because you pick one character, you that doesn't mean you're locked out of never being able to beat the game if something happens, because there is a way to kill off your characters in that game. There's actually, at least on the NES version, there's really only one way that you can uh, actually die in the game. I gotta say, a way? There's a lot of ways. Several, actually. Um, if I'm remembering right, it was, and it's only in some versions... Because uh, they snuck in a means of um, stealing one of the mansion inhabitants' pet hamsters and sticking it in the microwave and then presenting the exploded remains to him and then he just offs you on site. Yet Nintendo was pissed about that. And the thing was that they didn't know about it because they just did it as a port. The original The original game has that in there. That's just one thing you can do. There's um, multiple ways that you can get yourself killed. There is, uh, that's one of them, killing the pet hamster of the crazed military uh, paramilitary guy who lives upstairs and giving his remains back. Uh, number two, which is just a dick move. Number two mm-hmm. is going to the. Um, so they have a nuclear reactor built in their mansion, somewhat poorly <laughs> put together. And so the coolant system is the enti- is the uh, is the to keep the the reactor cold is they're pumping water from the 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 pool. At some point in the game, you actually have to drain the pool to get because there's a key uh, stuck at the bottom of it. But if you go in there, you can kill off one of the me- t- one of your members by going in there, leaving your guy because leaving one of your heroes there, switching to the other hero, and turning the water back on so it drowns him. Such a dick move. A third option is to take. Uh, it's an item in the game that's a gla- uh, That's just a glass jar which you can fill with different liquids. One of the liquids is the now radioactive water that's in that pool, and just drink it yourself. And the other option, if you just want to find a way to kill everybody, is you drain the pool and you leave. That's it. After so much time, the whole place uh, melts down. But yeah, so like the thing is that even if you get one of your owners uh, killed, there it's you're not locked out. There is a way to beat the game with uh, with the few with the remaining resources they have. It's harder, and arguably there's a character in the game called Jeff, which is useless to you because when I beat the game, I had uh, Jeff in my party, and Jeff uh, each of the member kids, uh, each of the people that you can pick in your party have a special skill set. Jeff has the least special skill set possible. He has one the, uh, thing that makes him different than everybody else, which is to fix a phone. And two other characters can do that already. It's like, why even at that point? But yeah, so the thing is that that was the LucasArts philosophy. Was to, uh, game was made by LucasArts. It was to make this adventure game so it was always had a beatable option. Another option with that is um, Monkey Island series. Uh, there isn't a way to really lose lethally in a Monkey Island game. It, it, it'll take time, 
I mean, what? He, uh, Guybrush Frequent can hold his breath for, or I think it's 17 minutes? 10 minutes. Um, for 10 minutes. I think only one game actually takes that literally. Mm-hmm. Every other game, you can be underwater for 30 minutes and show no ill effects. Yeah, because I think it, I think you can literally just be down there <laughs> indefinitely. You just yeah. chill down there. Um, so sometimes... It, Certain games ha- uh, that were coming around for computer games at this time, though, they had some, let's just call it an errors in programming, which have became kind of legendary. Um, the two biggest ones that I know of. Um, the first one is, a ga- is the original 1990 XCOM that came out for DOS systems originally. So when that game came out, the- it was released, and... It got this notor- this uh, notoriety of being a really hard game, and it is. So that's actually one of the games that is super difficult, and I love. And if you were to ask me, "Hey Leo, what's the great? Oh, should I play this XCOM game?" I will tell you no, because that is really hard. Wait, go for the newer versions that come out ten to fifteen years later for the Xbox and the uh, and the and the PC. Then that's a much better game to get into. Um, but this XCOM game was hard. Now, as it turns out, there was a bug in the programming. And what it did is it flipped all the, uh, the menu, uh, the difficulty select options. So when you were selecting the easiest difficulty, you were in reality selecting the hardest difficulty. Yep. Oh. And it's kind of funny that you mentioned that, too, because, I mean, oh, there's sucks. a lot of people that have played XCOM that have said on the easiest difficulty could never beat it because of that because i was never mm-hmm. known but so here's where xcom takes the play for it so their games are now it, that came out because it has several sequels before you get to the, the the newer ones and even then they're still really tough really difficult games but now it just built a notoriety of being hard and so now people who are who want the hard challenge are leaning to going to xcom instead of other games yep and it sounds brutal but it is fun. Um, although you get some wacky stuff where, like, your your soldier has to fire a shot, and you watch it go into a barn three blocks down. It hits a gas tank. The enemy's two feet from him. He misses that badly. Ninety eight percent accuracy, more like two percent accuracy. <laughs> yeah, and that happens five times in a row. Yep. So you're questioning your own will to live at this rate. <laughs> yeah, and XCOM was no uh, was definitely uh, mm-hmm. notorious for stuff like that too cuz again, like I just said, 90% accuracy really is more like 2% accuracy. Guy could be right there. It's really uh, it's not an accurate measure of how accurate your firing is. It's how certain your soldier is that they that can too. make the shot, which really has nothing to do nope. with their skill. It has to do with their confidence. Oh, looks like Billy Bob's really confident there. Yeah, he's got he's got a 70% chance. To hit that killer ale. Nope. Looks like Billy Bob has missed. Horribly. Um, he's so confident he's stuck the barrel in the enemy's face. Right down his face hole. But no, he misses. <laughs> People didn't... Like, like Steve was right. People did not complain that, there's, uh, that there was an error at first. They just assumed that's just how hard the game was. Man, if this is easy mode, I wonder what difficult is like. When you also got... You also have to factor in, though, too, at the time that XCOM came out as well. I mean, you didn't have forums like you do in this day and age. You didn't have stuff like that that also helped identify, like, hey, this is a known bug. So, like, most of these games that got released got released as they were. There was no day one patch to fix the fucking difficulty because no. they fucked up. There was none of that. And, I mean, it's like, 
in this day and age, we we when your new game comes out, you're always going to get a day one patch to help correct what they realized was a fuck up in development. But I mean, back in that day and age, when it got released, it got released. That was it. You got it as it yeah, was. Yeah, when the game went gold, that meant um, that's the game. Mm-hmm. Yep. Now, when a game goes gold, it means well, be ready for a uh, day zero patch that is half yep. the size of the disc. Yeah, that's also true. Yeah. Another programming error that's just ended up in the t- notoriety, which I think is funny because they know about it and they just ran with it, is Civilization. <laughs> Sid Meier's Civilization. Okay, I, I just realized which one this is. <laughs> yep, Gandhi. Mutually assured destruction. Yeah. I, I think I think of this one, though, too. We should let Rob explain his story about his experience with Gandhi, too, because I feel like that would be really appropriate for this for this particular conversation. And, and I feel like my story is probably pretty universal for people who have played Civilization. But, you know, playing playing Civilization, the very first one, because uh, I'm old and Gandhi, it's, it's late in the game. Most civilizations have developed a lot of a lot of higher tech stuff. And Gandhi approaches me. And says, hey, we've got nukes, so you're going to give us a bunch of money so we don't nuke you. And my immediate reaction is, you're Gandhi. You're not going to nuke me? No, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard in my entire life. Screw you. I'm not giving you one red penny. Um, And Gandhi is many things, but he's not a liar. And he nuked two of my cities that turn. (laughs) Same turn. Totally laid waste to me, and you better believe I started paying Gandhi after that. <laughs> <laughs> and so, go well, I was gonna say, cause like, so the reason why, and a lot of people like who are listening to this podcast here are probably going, like, yeah, we know the situation. But for those who have never played Civilization, and I mean, I'm gonna kind of steal your thunder in this one here, Leo, just because you did a lot of explaining. Yeah, you're you're going where I'm going. But, the reason behind this was was the difficulty of the game. Every um, every historical figure had a set difficulty, with Gandhi being set at the lowest is what it was. So by the time that um, as the game advances, new weaponry comes out, new discoveries comes out, it always continues to lower the difficulty of the characters uh, that you're going against. Well, being Gandhi was at the lowest. The moment that nukes became a thing, Gandhi went from zero to ten. And it's because the counter reversed itself because it couldn't go the past zero. Factor. So what did it do? It went exactly. It did the negative factor and then it treated it as negative one was actually 10. So Gandhi then becomes the most aggressive son of a bitch in the entire game to come after you. And if he's got the nukes, you're paying like what Rob had to do. So you have to keep that in mind too. And the funniest part about all this is that the developers realized this. And instead of correcting this for future games, they thought it was the funniest thing in the world that Gandhi is this just hyper-aggressive asshole with nukes that they decided to make Gandhi a hyper-aggressive asshole with nukes. So it's a trend that just kept going. So what they did was that, um, and it's not difficulty, uh, it's aggressiveness. They have an yeah, aggressive that's what it was. And then, Yeah, the aggressiveness. Um, once you hit, I think, roughly about the 1800s or such, uh, once you get at certain sciences, it pushes everyone up by a certain number. But Gandhi's will loop into a negative number, thus making him into showing up as the most aggressive guy out there. So he he's got no chill. Yep. You just uh, uh, to uh, uh, but the thing is that seems right though. Difficulty does play into a factor. Anyone who's played a civilization game knows that you can set the difficulty higher, and it makes it rougher for you. 
it doesn't necessarily make the Gandhi any easier, and he is no. more likely to beat you up now. <laughs> in, in Gandhi becomes the biggest case, warlord. In that particular case, it's more a matter of uh, stat adjustments as the game progresses, more so than real difficulty. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah. Because doesn't difficulty in that affect the uh, like the minerals and stuff that you collect, that kind of thing? Correct. Yes, it does. The higher the difficulty, less minerals you get your hands on. That's, so you have, you have to have better resource management. So yes, it does that, but also it's how that the enemy, the AIs will compete against you. So they're more That's likely... It, yeah. So what happens is that they're more likely to fight you or they're more likely to work behind your back or to make certain allies against you. Um... Oh, that two-faced son of a bitch. I've been played before. I played a game of Civilization, um, and I got played to the point of me being the guy who's trying to conquer the world. And all I did was help this other person out, and these other guys out. Turns out they were using my army to take everyone else out. It was it was horrible. <laughs> like I just gave him a banana. What happened here? When did I become the bad guy? <laughs> I look over, and the entire nation... Uh, uh, and of uh, the entire nation of England decided to pull the old 1600s trick and now has colonies all over the world because I wasn't paying attention. Oh. So we go from arcade, from the computer games and we move on to other games, which is consoles is the next big leap. And consoles tend to have a whole different history, especially when it comes to the two biggest game designers at this time, nationwide, Japan, and their big uh, contributions with Nintendo and and um, the Super NES and other game development companies in there like Square and Konami, but then you also have on the left side the United States as well with their game developers that have been coming uh, coming out. Um, it's software and I'm trying to think of an uh, interplay and various other ones like that. So they tend to have a. Uh, different ways of developing and now one big thing on this and this has to be mentioned in the 1980s there was a moment that was called the the great video game crash at that time in time and that was specifically to the united states but united states is one of the biggest game developing country countries in the world at this time the video game crash basically was an economic crash in video game design because there was as we kind of pointed out no quality control, no QA. If a game was broken when you got it, tough. Um, other consoles, such as the Atari, had a lot of janky games. Some games, um, like E.T. came out, and that thing has no- notoriety all on its own. Well, E.T. was one that basically contributed to the video game crash at that point, too. Especially, oh, like, because right when that one came out, they mass-produced this game that was janky as all fuck. I feel bad for the developer of that, though, the game designer who had to do that, because essentially he yeah. had, what is it, three, uh, five to six months to pump out a game, uh, a fully functional notoriety game at the same, while being stalled out because of negotiations in order to use the rights to use E.T. And so by the time they got to the development process, he's running out of time, and this is back in the day of single to one to two... Very small teams. Very, very small. So, um, about E.T., um, would you like to know how much time he actually had to make that game? I think it was less than five to six months. I thought it was like six weeks. It was five weeks. 
Yeah, something like that. It was way, yeah, yeah it was super small. And to make matters even worse on that, um, it was the first time that uh, the publishers, let alone the developers, um, had guaranteed sales to Spielberg. Guaranteed numbers that they would sell of this game. Um, yeah. 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 Um, the developers were absolutely pissed. It's like, you are giving us zero lead time for this, let alone for... Because uh, they wanted it out by Christmas. And it's like, okay, so in order for us to be able to do this, mind you, because, yes, they had about five to six months from signing. You had to factor in things like marketing, mass production, and shipping, which were nowhere near as fast or efficient as they are today. So he had to get that stuff done fast to be able to do the marketing, to be able to do the manufacturing and the delivery of all these items. So this guy, I don't remember what his name was. It's Howard Scott Warshaw. Okay, yeah. I've read a book on this, actually, and that's why I'm as familiar with this as I am, because I've read it multiple times, and it's hilarious, um, just to read about how polarizing some of these stories in the industry are, depending on who you ask. (laughs) Um, Because Nolan Bushnell of Atari comes off, like when he talks about things, he talks about it in very, you know, um, layman's kind of way, very down-to-earth kind of way. But then when you talk to literally, like you hear the interviews with everybody else, Nolan was a fucking asshole to everybody so it's like this is just so different no matter who you ask it is a different story um but this is the pretty pretty concise story of no we were screwed here from the beginning (laughs) and i think it developed it it fell in his hands because so uh because howard um also developed uh, a game called yars revenge and for game historians yars revenge is the most popular and successful game of the atari 2600 so this is so I get you got to feel bad for Howard Scott Warshaw for both me having created the greatest game of the Atari and the worst considered the worst game of the Atari. Although he can hold over his head once almost crashing the entire single system single handedly. You're welcome. Right. <laughs> and then end up having your stuff buried somewhere in a desert. Yeah, and the worst part is it wasn't even all Atari's fault. Or not Atari, excuse me, no. E.T.'s fault. It just gets pinned on it on E.T. because it was the final straw. Like, you can you can see that there was a decline coming already. I mean, it was a buildup. It's just E.T. was such a massive, like, push for something that was ultimately just going to fail anyway. But it was such a big push with so many thousands of copies being put out in the market all at once. And it's just like, well, you killed it yourself, guys. <laughs> yeah. And that's, that's basically the truth of it. When you mass produce something like that and then you completely undersell it uh, like the way it did, it's, there's no, there's no recovery straight up. There's just no recovery. And that's just how it comes down to. Yeah. So. Now there, uh, luckily for our sakes, there is a, was a recovery process, but it's not the way as most people think. So what happens is that after a couple of years, uh, uh, Nintendo comes out and they want to make a, a game console and they do as much to, uh, to say, yes, we're making not video games, wink, wink, nudge, nudge. So they're like, this is an entertainment system, which is why it's titled the NES, Nintendo yep. Entertainment System, 
to avoid it being associated from video games. Now, it's also why it looks like a toaster oven. So, but with that, they also introduce things that they don't normally do. That's, there's a quality control. There is acceptable release timeframes. So they change around the gaming industry to fit this, but that's because of the crash. Dealt with some other restrictions that a lot of people didn't agree on. One of the things is that if you were a game developer in the United States, you are limited to how many games you could output per year. So upside is that's one of the reasons why you have more time to work on a game. Downside is you can only make one or two, you think it is. Uh, the total number per year was six titles, and that was per publication company. So they would actually, companies started circumventing this by acquiring other publications. Like LJN was a publication uh, that was purchased by another company. Uh, Ultra Games was a subsidiary of, a, of a Konami. So they were able to get additional product out each year that way. Um, this, it was a big fight with a lot of companies at this time, which is really unfortunate, but totally understandable because you don't really want to push your luck when you're pulling yourself literally out of the ground. <laughs> and, you had, and you had to mention the devil's name of video game publishers back, back then in the Nintendo era too, LJN laughing, joking, numb nuts as they have been amply dubbed by the internet thanks yeah. to the angry video game nerd. Credit to James on that one. Um, but yeah, I mean, you talk about that right there too because that, that's basically what it was because like, you know, when the, if you think about it, you look at the biggest library on the Nintendo, it actually is LJN. I think they have something like over 40 games that was on the Nintendo. For one publisher? Yeah. Yeah, on the Nintendo alone. Just the NES, not the Super NES, not the Sega Genesis, nothing else. Just the NES. It's actually one of the biggest libraries because of what they did. They they kept like, you know, basically publishing these titles that had almost no quality control to them to begin with, which is why most of the games that got released were bad. Is the best way to put that? Bad. Um I mean, granted, not all of them were bad, though, too. It's like we can't say that LGN did nothing but produce, like, a giant shit pile of games because that's not what they did. I mean, they were the publishers, sure, but a lot of it does still fall back on to the developers. Then they had to meet their deadlines as well because, again, you know, like, we talk about this, and you made a very interesting point. Like, you know, we're talking about the time frame and, like, the handling and stuff like that. It's all political bullshit when it gets right down to it. It's always politics that get involved and mess it up when it comes when it gets right into it. Um and I'm not talking like government or anything like that. I'm talking literally just like, you know, person A, person B, person C, the expectations are set. And then somebody's not on the same page. And it's always a swerve for making it worse. And, and then the, then you have the history of LGN as a result. Like you look at that and that is, and I mean, it's exactly what it is. Your games are difficult because they didn't have time to actually do the quality control. And because LJM would be like, we're going to give you XYZ amount of money. You need to finish this game within this set amount of time. And half the time, it was never enough time to give them the quality control and make sure that the controls were good, make sure the gameplay was fair, and make sure that there wasn't any freaking jank with the graphics, which a lot of those LJN games had oh, jank yeah. with graphics. Now, then the reasons why, and that's one of the reasons why a lot of people, especially for Nintendo back then, would lean towards Nintendo-made games, Zelda, Mario, yep. and that's because they put all the effort into the quality control for it. Um, so and and their tech, they do some interesting stuff with their stuff back then. Um, now, when we get into that, though, there's also an economic practice that happens in the U.S. that doesn't really happen in other parts of the world. Um, 
and I think Ben, you understand more about that one more than I do. It's um, Japan has no rental system. Uh, they a- didn't at the time. Um, rentals were actually illegal for the longest time in Japan. Um, so the idea of it was very foreign to the developers. And you ran into an issue of tr- them trying to compensate or balance that to encourage the sales of their product instead of allowing the rentals to happen. And because of that, you would run into games where they would, uh, they would actually, for the American releases, adjust the difficulty up, uh, making it more difficult to play it and finish it in the time frame a rental would allow thus encouraging you to go out and just buy the game to have unlimited time with it. Um, the one that I'm most familiar with is the uh, the first Resident Evil game, even on the PlayStation 1, um, is significantly more playable and easy in, in on the Japanese release. Uh, part of it is, obviously, ammo. Ink ribbons are... Yeah, they're, they're all very different yeah. um, amounts available to, to you in the game. But also a control scheme is straight up absent altogether in the American release. Um, the primary um, play, the default in Japan actually, uh, on the PS1 was the auto lock aiming system, where when you would pull up your gun, if there was an enemy near, it would automatically turn you towards them and target them. Completely absent in the American version of the first game. They introduced it in the second game as a what the third control type yeah yeah it was the third control type runs evil too i mean just as a prime example of them trying really really hard to make sure you bought the game instead of rented the game because they hurt they thought it would hurt the sales and they're not wrong um there was uh an old snes game i can't remember what it is but it was the old uh, beat-em-up that i i played when i was younger and there was a uh there was a secret code, kind of like the Konami code that you'd put in, up, up, down, down, left, right. Um, when you put in this code for it, it flipped the game from its U.S. release to the Japanese release. And when it did that, certain stages were shorter. Uh, some of the areas had uh, had smaller enemies, or less enemies for it. Um, the There's a, a stage in it that's in the sewer. In the U.S. version, it's a puzzle that you have to figure out how to get navigate your way through there while you're in the timed section. In the Japanese version, it's a straightaway, like any typical um, beat-em-up style game. Okay, this is a beat-em-up you're yeah, talking about. Yeah, this is about. a beat-em-up style game, so like Final Fight, Castle Crashers. Um, right, right. Style. And 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 there's a puzzle. Yeah. It's in a in a sewer level. Yeah, yeah the puzzle level sort of kind of like when the uh, it's it comes up a lot in Zelda games where there's the forest stage that you're in. You go from one entrance to it and it'll lead you to another entrance. And you have to figure out the right pattern to get through that. Well, in order to exit, this is the second stage, and it's already a tough game. Uh, it's actually and the enemies have more health in the U.S. version than they did in the, in the Japanese version. Fuck that. <laughs> That's all I've got on that. No, I'm sorry. I think I know what game that is you're talking about, too. I think that was Sonic Blast, man, because that was one of the... No, no, not... Well, it's a different one. I'll see yeah, if you can see find if you can it. Find um, some on that. Shoot that to me later, obviously, because we, we're, st- we're mm-hmm. obviously in the middle of the podcast right now, too. So, I mean, but definitely yeah. shoot that to me later, because I'm curious to check that one out. I will. Um, I, I could probably find it again. Um, 
But yeah, so this is a whole economic system that one nation is doing that the other nation is not. And and we're talking a little bit about, you know, they're they're doing this on purpose, but the type of challenges that they're introducing aren't the engaging type of challenges. No. No, you know, it's no fun yeah. to get screwed over by the computer. It's no fun when you fail because your control scheme is messed up. But as as we're talking about this is early days, there wasn't there wasn't really an internet, you know. There wasn't a way to like compare and contrast. Mm-hmm. If you lived in America, you weren't going to get the Japanese version of the game. You know, you'd have to go through jump through all sorts of hoops to get that when you've got, you know, you could just go buy one at the store down the street. Why would you bother getting the any the Japanese version? imported over that's dumb nobody does that and so nobody knows that there's this disparity between you know between your control screens between the difficulties um you can't get away with that now you know now that now that we do live in an age of the internet but even so there are a lot of people who think i want you know the engagement of my game is challenge i need to make it challenging and the way to do that is with janky controls and then see to me that's just like when you make it like that way that's that's what i like to call an artificial challenge where it's it's not organic it's not it's not something that was designed this way because you have it's memory patterns or anything like that it's because you're literally fighting against bad control design and and in my opinion it's like and the the hardest thing to kind of talk about that too it's like you ever watch like somebody do a playthrough of a game that you're very interested in they talk about oh it's very difficult but then they, you, you start to look at this like, well, how's this game difficult? Because it's like this guy's just whomping on it. And the, the thing that people don't understand is that you can't see the, the hardware side of it, which is making it difficult because you're watching a video. This person who's playing it's already adjusted to the shit factor of the control. And that's literally what it is. It's like mm-hmm. there are some games. I remember NES games back in the day that had half second delays when you tried to hit something. It's like you Castlevania. Castlevania is a great one. Castlevania is a fantastic one. It has a half second delay every single button press. It's while it did have tight controls for the most part, though, a lot of your attacks were, yes, half second delays. Um, But I'm also talking like, I can't, there's a couple of games too, and it's like kind of jumping back to LJN on this one too and saying that. But there you had a couple of games that get released where it's like tapping a controller to have your character inch forward non-existent you you literally have to hold that da- damn thing down to get this thing to move faster than a freaking tank and you can get out push it faster than a tank could um yeah and that and that's kind of and that's kind of like we you know like what rob's talking about there that's a great example of that when the game's intentionally designed that way especially in today's day and age it's it's not a fun experience like i i have been, seriously have quit like i'm a bigger fan of like the metroidvania style gameplays i'm a bigger fan of the side scrolling beat em ups than i am like the first person shooters while i do enjoy good first person shooters and i do enjoy good rpgs i will always find my bread and butter be in the side scrolling games and if i find that the controller is absolute shit in a side scroller game in today's day and age i'll hands up drop it i won't play it anymore because it's just to me i'm i don't have time to deal with somebody who decided i'm going to make this game more difficult by putting an artificial challenge by making the controller not be responsive and i like to think that most people don't do that but like what rob said it does happen yeah, and I, I don't think it's it's not always you know an intentional we're going to screw over over players. It's can com, or uh, program your controls is hard, you know. I believe it. Getting getting them to work just friend. right is hard, and 
a delay between when you press a button and when something happens on screen. I mean, ordinarily you think of that, you know, that should be instantaneous. There should be minimal possible delay, but there are reasons why you might want to have a small delay in there. Um, and it's, it's sometimes difficult to get that right while you're developing a game. Um, yep. And, and of course, bad controls very rarely, but very notably sometimes are the fun of the game. Uh, Octodad comes to mind. I am Brad. The whole point of the game is that you have crappy controls and you have to do these mundane, simple tasks yep. with them. But it's the other one, QWERTY, I think is what it is. Quap. Quap, lads. But you see, in that situation, though, too, like when that is the intention behind the game, and that's the funny part about it, like the developers has the idea of like, let's develop this game that has newer age graphics, newer age, like, but, you know, it's the, the, the fun factor isn't the isn't the game itself. It's the fact that you have to fight these bad controls to have these simple tasks be done. You want to make bread. Well, you know, good luck making bread with bad fucking controls because that's the whole point of the game. And that's, and see, that's one of those things where, like, that's acceptable because those are, as they have been labeled, rage games. I have never heard that term before. Oh, my God. <laughs> like, getting over it with, Benny Fo- with Bennett Foddy. It's, that's a great example of a rage game where the control, like, the whole objective is to get this guy in a freaking, uh, I forget. A cauldron. cauldron. Cauldron, thank you using a sledgehammer to get himself around the map. Not even a pickaxe, a sledgehammer. <laughs> and the controls are intentionally designed to be bad. It, it's less about the controls and more about it being a physics-based experience, I think, with those, though, you know? Yeah, so it's like, you have to think about it that way, too. It's like, again, that's that's that bad control design, where it's like, you would think, that, oh, that's not too hard that should be easy to do no it's fucking designed to make you rage and that's why these that these particular type of games i am i am bread or i think i am toast i think it's i can't remember the name of that one is but you know i, I am bread i must become toast yeah i am bread i must become toast yep <laughs> uh, uh <laughs> you have that you have octodad you had getting over it like there's a it, and it's its own genre people love to play these games because they love getting fucking angry and i don't understand it it's not for me I want, like, you know what, I want my games to make me mad. I'll play Ghosts of Goblins. And you have seen it with the videos on, on Gaming Theater. I eventually start tilting because it starts pissing me off. But I'll get through it because I still like the game. <laughs> but when it's, again, it's it, I don't I don't submerge myself into these sort of things. And I don't imagine, I don't know any of my friends who do. And if you guys do, I'm, I'm you guys need to seek some help. That's all I'm going to tell you right now. <laughs> um, there, there is no help for me, man. There's no help, although Steam has a discount I could use right about now. Ooh, and I hate this. Let me just uh, crack these knuckles. And I, I think it really has to do a lot with your... You walk into getting over it knowing that the controls are the challenge. You understand when you pick up that controller that this is where the challenge comes from. It's exactly. not you know, exactly. necessarily that you have to do this. Like You're not trying to do it under a time limit. It's not necessarily that the map itself is weirdly difficult. You go in there understanding that mastering the controls is a challenge you are trying to overcome. When you go into like Dark Souls, your control, you're not expecting your controls to be the difficult mm-hmm. part. <laughs> so it sort of brings up to the next point. At certain point in time, uh, like there's been changes through consoles and other games at that point to make a change. A big one that happened in the early 2000s was the introduction of dynamic difficulty, 
the game adjusting its difficulty to make itself easier or harder as it goes. And one of the earlier ones of that was Crash Bandicoot. Um, and the designers wanted to do that so that way it would be... Um, if the game was too hard for a player, they could... They could. Uh, they would make the game yep. easier without you recognize, without you feeling that the game is making it easier. There's other games that try to do certain things like that as well. Um, I want. There were some early Capcom games. I want to say it's Onimusha who did that. Um, there was one where after you failed so many times, it would give you the option to select it to an easier difficulty. Granted, to me that felt like a a, a jab at my skill level, sir. Oh yeah, no, that's a that's a backhand mode. That's right a backhand mode. You know you wanna you wanna ease this down a notch. Um And so it's not the only time Capcom's done it either. I just wanna quickly jump into Resident Evil 4. There's a room that's got a couple of uh water um ponds in it, and there's a bunch of enemies with the spiked shields. And then there's a couple enemies up high and off center that have crossbows. In the original build of the game, if you die three times to that room, um, the fourth time you come in, those crossbow guys are not there. Yep, it does actually remove them. I do remember that, yeah. And, that, and that's automatic. And it's it's dropped down to a single death on all the modern ports. But that's what a dynamic difficulty is. It's just a big one that did stuff like that was Left or Dead and when that game came out. Yeah. With the director? The AI director is amazing. <laughs> Another one, too, that actually had a pretty good uh, AI director in it as well that actually was before Left 4 Dead, if I remember correctly, was Fear. Because the AI in Fear was also really good to go with as well. Um, that one actually did know how to adjust itself on the fly to make the enemies seem more um, seem more uh, competent while still having the same amount of health and whatnot. Like, and I, and I kind of use an example in this one too, where I talk about this, where it's like uh, our, our good friend, Kyle, uh, Kai, uh, I, I can never pronounce this, his name, uh, Kibai? Kibai? Yeah, Kibai. Um, but in any case, though, um, like when I was playing Fear at his place and we were going through this, we made a comment about how it's like, it's like, you know, it's like we were talking about the, the games AI was supposed to be revolutionary and we didn't really we didn't feel like it was being revolutionary at the time. And that's like that's the perfect open foot insert mouth or, or yeah, open foot insert mouth situation type right there where I'm commenting about how the AI is not that great. And then the next thing I know, my ass got flanked by the AI because I was focusing on the guy in front of me. I didn't see his buddy actually jump through the window of the office to go around the side of the building and get <laughs> me from behind. And like, that's the sort of stuff right there too. You talk about like the difficulty where the difficulty starts like dynamically adjusting itself. And it's like, it also does it in a manner of like where you're too good at a game. It also knows, all right, cool. You're tough. You're good. Let's start ramping it up. Another one that does it, there was an old um, mech-based uh, ta uh, tactical game that I used to play called Ring of Red. And the Ring of Red would learn your... PlayStation 2, baby. Yeah. Ah, yes. Uh, it would learn your own strategy. So that way, when you got through later levels, um, the same strategy, uh, the enemies adjusted to that strategy. So, like, if you uh, if you were favoring uh, planting mines, they would have characters that would pop up with the ability to remove mines. If you started doing things like uh, things that do a high damage, your enemy will start coming up with characters that would have um, that could restore health, and they just played with it for a bit, and that was really interesting. Um, so we kind of get towards you know where we're at right now. Um, 
there's different types of games that are out there that have different abilities. Like, a genre that made a big comeback and almost died almost as quickly, uh, uh, which is roguelike games. The ability for the game to randomize itself, and that's part of the difficulty curve. Like, big ones like Risk of Rain series. Um, Hades. Hades is a big, uh, is a huge one. Uh, Returnal. Returnal. Yep, Returnal's the newest big one that's in the PlayStation 5. I mean, that's, that's your current big one that's actually out there right now. Co-op DLC on the way, too. Yeah. Free, free DLC, actually. Free. Yeah, it's a free update. Ooh, that sounds fun. Oh, yeah, got to do Hashtag it. not sponsored. Hashtag could be. Hashtag will allow <laughs> sponsorship. Um, <laughs> but yeah, so roguelikes give you the ability to have, uh, which adjusts things uh, on the fly, and it's just random, uh, procedurally generated and randomized on how it goes. So your gameplay is never the same. So with that, it's the difficulty. You could lose immediately uh, at a game. My first run of Hades was horrible. I got I didn't even make it to the fighter's boss. I made it to the the first um halfway point boss and I took a bad hit in the face. So when the room took an error down, I'm like, well, there it is. But that's the point of Hades, because you can do so much stuff after you died. At the end the and chit chat with your friendos and such. Of Risk of Rain 2, amazing multiplayer experience. Praise be to RNG this man. Got, easily could get leveled, and they just encourage you to get worse. Um, other things that changed in the in Dime Ray is how AI is developed. A real big one that you kind of have to, that I recognize is um, you have such like uh, Half Life, when that fir- the first Half Life game when that came out. Um, its AI was designed to do things that the, that the, that wasn't around for first-person shooters back then. So usually you saw an enemy, you shot the enemy. What the AI did in this case is that they would send, uh, they would have a group of three or four grunts, and they would take cover to dodge your bullets. And you could be fighting one while the other one is trying to flank you from the side. Yep. And so they developed tactics to work around that for you. Though they were very much limited back in the day, that that one, though, too. It's like you didn't start... It wasn't until you got to like where fear was, where it enhanced the same tactics. Because if I remember correctly, fear was produced, I think, by Sierra or Valve. I could be wrong on that. Um, I am actually wrong on that. Yeah, no, it's not that one. Um, nah. Although Halo was one that came out and yeah. learned a lot from the AI system. Yeah, the AI system in Halo, it, the traditional Halo AI, like when you deal with like the uh, uh, the elites. I mean, Leo, you and I are trying to go through legendary mode in Halo One. We're getting whomped on. And I mean, that's a great example of it right there, too, where that's happening. Um, hello, cat. Sorry. My, yeah, my cat just suddenly graced me and just like, what the? I got three. It's uh, fine. <laughs> but in any case, so yeah, like that, that, that perfect example right there. Halo. Great example of that where the AI is ever evolving. And even though it's still simplistic in its nature, it's the fact that it still challenges you to watch your six, as they say. And a lot of first-person shooters in this day and age now thrive on that. So, well, and kind of a lot, slight, slightly tangential to that, but um, a lot of first-person shooters these days pretend to be more difficult than they really are. I, I want to yeah. say this started with Half-Life. I'm not positive, but at a certain point, most most first-person shooters, when you come across an enemy NPC and they open fire on you, they are programmed to miss those first few shots. You will not get headshotted out of the blue by an enemy you did not know was there. Um, because first off, that's just not fun. That's not a very fun experience. But it's realistic. But it also it may it makes it seem 
more difficult. I got shot at. I am so lucky I didn't get killed right there. But that's actually not what happens. It's you. There's no way you could have gotten killed right there. Well, and that what you're talking about there too is also known as hit scanners. Is what that is. Where the moment they fired, you're hit automatically. It doesn't matter what it is. And I mean, only a couple of games still rely upon that. Uh, a couple that I know of are like Ion Fury, for example, which is made by 3D Realms, still uses hit scanners. And that's literally what that is. That's actually what it is called is hit scanners is because like in your 3D shooting games, like Doom, uh, the current Dooms, uh, not not the old ones, because the old ones also had hit scanners in them too. But like your current version of Dooms, your current version of Halos, your current version of Call of Duty, um, they all have where the enemy is intentionally missing you for the first few shots. They're eventually going to start landing those hits because you're taking longer to get rid of them. And that's why it's like when you watch like speed runs, exactly great example, speed runs of these games. The reason why these guys go down so fast is because A, they remember where they're spawning. B, their shots are not going to hit them half the time. Obviously, when you crank the difficulty up, then you start removing those lim- you start removing those limiters. But until that happens, yeah, most of your speedruns will have that factor in there too. And then this is no discredit to the speedrunners at all. Like, so any speedrunners who are listening to us understand that what you do is pretty damn impressive. Um, but it's just that you know in the code and the understanding of it as well, like what Rob does and pointing it out, when you take out the element of a hit scanner and you put it into where it's like, like, you know what Brandon said, it's like you you get rid of the realism where you're going to get hit automatically in the head by some guy who shoots. It does add the difficulty without actually adding a Mm -hmm. difficulty. Yeah, there is, I guess we're up to where we are now. So there is a market and people who love getting to these challenges and such. I know I still play, go back and play XCOM and make it harder myself just because I want that challenge for it. Um, and the the key, I think, is that that's important is to make sure that the whatever is making it difficult is less frustrating and more of actually a challenge for it. Um, because if it's going to be frustrating, it'll be always, uh, always rough every time you get in there. If it's just simply difficult and things are just being uh, working against you for it, um, and this is just, uh, then that's just a way that you, then that's you adapting and overcoming. And that's the, the sort of the way that you want, uh, uh, that why people would want to keep playing these difficult challenge games. Soulsborne series has made a whole, um, genre just to do that. Yeah. And I mean, um, challenge as an engagement type, as a thing that makes games fun has never truly ever gone away, you know, back in the past, that was really the only way you had to, you know, you didn't have the memory or the ability to craft a cunning narrative in eight bits. That wasn't going to happen. You know, it was, you weren't going to get the most amazing sound and art out of eight bits. You weren't going to be able to have an expansive map that you could go around and explore and discover things in. Those were things that they couldn't do because of technology limitations. And so challenge was one of very few fun things that you could be doing in a game as technology has moved on we've got a lot more ways now you can have beautiful vistas and wonderful music you could have compelling narratives you could have vast places to explore and find all sorts of fun secrets but challenge is still fun for a lot of people um and so it's i think a smaller percentage of games nowadays where challenge is the fun part 
But it's that has never gone away. And I think for a little while, we swung a little bit in the direction of shying away from challenges because we want to explore all these different types of ways you can enjoy a game. And now we're sort of experiencing more of the swing back to, well, this is still fun, though. Let's keep doing it. Skyrim's a great example of that. Skyrim's a game that's not super difficult, but the exploration of that is is hands down one of the best things I've ever experienced. And then we look at like, you know, go like going right into the soul series like it's a per example where it's like you can still explore but you are likely going to get your ass handed to you until you start leveling up whereas like in skyrim you can explore and not have to worry about ever dying you can stealth most of that game and sure you level up while you're stealthing but you can still stealth most of that game and be just fine so i mean that's a great great example because you're absolutely right rob as, as i am a person who leads more towards i like my games being tough i don't like it being rage hard but I do like them being tough. Um, and for me, it's like, you know, we'll we'll use the latest and the greatest one that just dropped here too, Elden Ring. While I don't find Elden Ring as difficult as the other Souls games, I think Elden Ring has a perfect blend of what Skyrim had on top of Dark Souls. And in my opinion, that's what really is, I, I think, and in, in saying this too for anybody who, who plays it or understands it, and what even what Miyazaki, the creator of it, has said. Like the difficulty is never going to stop. They're never going to stop making challenging games, but they are going to work more on making them more expansive in the terms of like your explorations there. You're, you're going to get to go out and explore the world, see what it is and understand that at every nook and cranny of that world, you're probably going to come across some guy that's going to kick your ass like back in high school. You done took my lunch money. Oh no. Oh no. I'm gonna... <laughs> but I mean like, but that's, but that's his... more like he's on his way to take your lunch money, sir. Exactly. But I mean like, but that's kind of what I'm getting at though, though too. It's like when you talk about that though, Robin, like that's why I think it's like what you're mentioning is a great example, especially for you, a, a up and coming game designer as well, going through the school for that. Um, you know, it's it's one of those things. It's actually kind of nice having a perspective of somebody who actually works on the inside of that, learning it and all the nooks and crannies of how that works too. Um, you know, it's 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 a very fascinating thing to talk about. That I mean, we can keep going on forever, but unfortunately, I have to cut it pretty. Uh, cut oh it, yeah, uh, we're cut it on basically my to, too. Yeah, but I mean, you know, it's 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 fascinating, and it's one of those things where it's like I'm 40 years old. I have no intention to stop gaming anytime soon. I'm going to continue to game. I'm going to teach my kids how to game. I'm going to teach them the joys and experience of gaming. I'll let them figure out what they want to play. Obviously, I don't want to submit them to torture yet. You play Friday the 13th, NES style, round one. You well, don't I'm, know that three characters don't work right in this whole game. I'm going to, I'm just going to put it this way. Like I am going to, I am going to be that dad though. Who's like, Oh, I want this newest and greatest console. Yeah. Well, you got to beat Ninja Gaiden on Nintendo first before you do that. <laughs> Fuck off with that noise, dude. <laughs> Actually, you, gotta... you know what? I'm going to make it worse. It's going to be Ninja Gaiden 3. <laughs> God damn, dude. I understand that you want to marry my daughter. Hmm, that's interesting. Well, uh, if you can defeat Battletoads on the original NES... Two players. Fuck. Beat it with two players. So go find somebody to help you on that. Good luck. Yeah, and you both have to survive the yeah. bosses. <laughs> but, uh... No, the... Finding finding the the balance between challenge and satisfaction is a never ending journey. I think for every game designer, and it's it's always interesting to see where each game kind of lands on that spectrum. You know? I agree, absolutely. Yeah. Okay, so I think that's a great place for us to end it. Um, our next episode will be coming out as if you're made to the end of this, will be coming out on April first. No. 
Is it April 1st? No, not April 1st. Yeah, don't make it a joke, dude. Come on. <laughs> uh-huh, uh-huh. Fools, no, I'm sorry. Fools. No, we do have an episode coming out on April oh, God. 1st. The next one is after that is going to be... <laughs> Uh, so, take this into account, this one would probably be, uh, our next episode after this would be on April 15th, so tax day, enjoy that factor. My oldest birthday, yo. <laughs> nice. Um, but yeah, so the next one will come out on April 15th, and, uh, and I'm glad to have you guys on there. Any kind of final thoughts on this before we, uh, sign off? Get good. <laughs> <laughs> If, if, that was my problem. I did not get good, sir. That's that's where I went wrong it, with this. Get good only applies though in, in, in you know the Souls games though too. I mm-hmm. mean, that, you're that, playing Contra, man. You know you have because like you know for the get good you have to you know make sure that you give up your life to the uh, to the gods of the Roly Polies for that. You know, um, yeah. You pledge your allegiance to this covenant, the covenant of get good. <laughs> covenant get good. <laughs> All right. And with that, I guess we'll be signing off. I hope you guys enjoyed this little EXP boost. And this is Gaming Theater, logging out. Toodles. Peace out. Later. Gaming Theater Podcast is hosted, created, produced, and edited by Leo Garcia, the Geek Scorpio. Our music is A Drinking Game. Stock media provided by Stormwave Audio slash Pond5. Our cover art is made by Kayla Dawn. You can find her at facebook.com slash Kayla Dawn Draws. That's Dawn, D-A-W-N. If you want to send us some financial support to help with producing things for gaming theater, you can do so at patreon.com slash gaming theater presents. It helps us out. Want to send support that doesn't hit your wallet? Please leave a review with wherever you hear your podcasts and share our podcast with your friends. It really helps out. Thank you for listening.